Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Kulturium.com in affiliation with Quadil Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.culturium.com. That's www.culturium.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJPodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled Life with Coach Pop, and my guest today is Istvan Steve Javorek, my father, who is known to his athletes around the world as Coach Pop. My father was the National Olympic weightlifting coach to Romania and later to South Korea before becoming a renowned strength and conditioning coach in the United States. He is a U.S. College Strength and Conditioning Coaches Hall of Famer, a recognized U.S. weightlifting senior international coach, professor emeritus at JCCC. Among his athletes are the Olympic medal winners Istvan Toshnadi, silver medalist for weightlifting at the 1984 Olympics, Dragomir Choroslan, bronze medalist for weightlifting, Randy Barnes, shot put silver medalist at the 1988 Olympics and gold medalist at the 1996 Olympics, Floyd Hurd in 200 meter sprint, world fastest in 1986, Samaya Anani, world champion female boxer, the basketball players Wayne Simeon, Kareem Rush, American football player Ray Childress, who after playing at Texas A&M played for the Houston Oilers and the Dallas Cowboys, and the list goes on and on. My father has been featured in Muscle and Fitness magazine, Men's Health, and numerous other international publications. He has written several books and has been a keynote speaker at multiple conferences and symposiums. He is an internationally recognized coach, and I have been tremendously proud of his achievements. He is also an incredible human being who has overcome hardships throughout his life and has relied on his sense of humor and his positive attitude to get him through. Beyond that, he has been an incredible father and my personal hero. I just finished writing a book entitled Life with Coach Pop that I'm planning on publishing under my maiden name, Henriette Yavrek. In the book, I focus on how it was to grow up with Istvan Yavrek as my father and on how I experienced my father's defection from Romania and our ultimate immigration to the U.S. 
Life with Coach Pop is scheduled to be released late in the fall of 2021, so keep a, a lookout for it. If you're interested in my books, you can also follow me on Instagram at Quadil, Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E, where I have more information and purchase links to all my books. In the meantime, I thought it would be fascinating for you to hear my father's personal recollections and memories, as well as his own words about his experiences, which is the subject of this episode. So, without further ado, here is the interview I conducted with my father. Perhaps one quick disclaimer before we move to the interview. My father is an absolute nonconformist and the opposite of politically correct, uh, which, by the way, is a point we have often had heated discussions about. Uh, the opinions and memories expressed are his own. So I'm sitting here with my father, Ishtan Jovarek. Welcome, Daddy, to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so I would like to, I mean, of course, I know who you are and what you've done, but I think uh, the listeners don't want to hear me say it. So would you mind telling us a little bit your life story, where you're from, how you started with your career as a coach, and then we'll go on because you really are the emblem of internationality not only in you yourself, in all the places that you have worked, but also the athletes that you have touched, the vast amount of different nationalities of athletes that you have had. So let me start from the beginning. Would you, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes. So my name, how you said, is Istvan Jaworek. Uh, I was born in uh, Bihar County. That time it was Hungary in 1943 and then so a few years ago <laughs> and then uh, I was born from a pretty rich uh, family and then uh, it was very interesting because I was born in January it was big snow and uh, my father was going with a bike of course not on the bike pushing the bike the snow was so big to the farm to my grandparents my mom's parents and then to tell them that he's a boy because a few years earlier my sister was born and then uh, my father was uh, cheating telling uh, to my grandfather that he's a boy and then they came in the city and then he was very disappointed so anyway <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> yes back then it wasn't it wasn't good to have a girl you only have a daughter yes, yes, <laughs> yes. so and then uh, uh, it was pretty nice lifestyle lifestyle and then uh, in 1951 the communist uh, government uh, decided to nationalize everyone's wealth. So during the night, the police was coming to my grandfather and they were arresting my uncle and my grandfather and they took them uh, to the prison and then they were asking them to sign a form. Uh, he just signed the papers because you couldn't do anything against them. And then still they were four years in a gulag, in a labor camp, at the Danube River. They tried to make a canal uh, from the Danube River to the Black Sea and then hundred thousands of rich people were there in these uh, labor camps. Anyway, so that was the beginning and then uh, so uh, it was pretty hard for us because we were considered, our parents were considered enemies of so uh, socialist uh, society and then uh, my sister couldn't go further, just seven elementary classes because uh, they considered 
that if you give a chance for the bourgeoisie to get educated, then they will revolt against the communism, the new society. So uh, my father decided that he wanted for his son uh, to get more education, and then uh, it wasn't able. I wasn't able to continue in that city where I was born. Just seven elementary classes. So he took the whole family and we moved in a big city in Kolozhvar, plus Napoka now the name of it. And then uh, he went in a factory. He was a very high qualified uh, uh, mechanic, so he got very good job. And at that time, they didn't follow very close uh, your background. So in that way, all of the doors were opened for me. I finished high school, and then uh, I wanted to get to university for uh, foreign diplomacy. But before to get on that subject, I would like to tell that I was a pretty skinny kid, and then uh, I played on violin, and then once I was coming home, this is already in Koluz, in Kolozhvar, uh, coming home from the violin classes in the afternoon, in the evening, and some uh, athletes, uh, gymnasts and weightlifters, were coming on the street, and then uh, they stopped me, and then uh, they took my violin and uh, case, they took up my violin uh, bow, so they were pushing me, and I needed to do it to press the violin bow overhead. So uh, they were laughing and making fun of me, and <laughs> so I went home, and I told to my mom, Mom, I don't want to be a violinist anymore. <laughs> and then she said, Why? I said, because what happened, I was embarrassed. I said, but uh, Ishtvan and Pishta, actually my nickname, said, you are like a, like a mosquito, very skinny. And then I said, I don't care. So I was uh, going on the street. Uh, they were making the new canalization, and they took up this cast iron old pipes, and then I filled up the old broken pipes. I filled up with sand, and then I started to lift those one, and then uh, I got some little bit strength. And I went in a gym, and then I said I would like to be an athlete. And then so I was so skinny and then flat-footed, and then they put me in a corner and said, do it what you want. So nobody was caring about me. And then I was following what they are doing, and then I was exercising, exercising, and I was looking around, and then I was imitating what they are performing and practicing. And then in a sudden, uh, just I felt that I am much stronger. So I told to the coach that I would like to compete. So on the first competition, he loved what I did. I don't remember how much I lifted, but uh, he said, okay, you can come and then stay on the last platform. It was several platforms. And then before I was just in a corner and now I could exercise on a platform. So I was very, very, very uh, enthusiastic and then, and hard worker and then industrious and then working every day more than other people did. And then uh, in three years later, I was national junior champion. And then the young man who was pushing me to press the violin bow overhead, he was the county champion in the heavyweight class. So I was in that time around uh, probably 62, 63 kilos and he was 100 some kilos and I beat him as a performance. So we became friends. And since we were friends up to the year when unfortunately a few years ago he died. So this was the part of how I started my career as an athlete. So I went to the, uh, I wanted to get to the University of Foreign Diplomacy in Bucharest 
the ISEP, Institute of Science, Economy and Politics, that's the name of the institute. When I applied, of course, for foreign diplomacy, they were looking in your file. Before, I was just a child of proletariat, but they say, wait a second, where is this from? So they found out that my grandparents were in Gulag, in labor camp, and they were rich before. So they said, okay, you cannot uh, be a foreign diplomat. And then if you don't go somewhere in university, then you go to army. In that time, it was two years military. So I said, oh my God, uh, it was one chance at the University of Physical Education. Uh, they did a program because they wanted a lot of teachers and coaches to get shorter time because after the world war still they didn't have enough pedagogues and then it was a three year they called the institute pedagogical institute of three years but they studied exactly same thing like others in five years but instead of i don't know four days of schools or classes we did five days six days of schools so anyway and then it was an ex extra examination for uh, to get on physical education physical education institute and then uh, I got into the institute and I finished it and then I, I qualified. I had a choice which I choose to be a physical therapist or just a regular teacher or a coach. So I, cho I choose my uh, specialty to be track and field and Olympic weightlifting. And then this actually took so much advantage for me in my future of my life. So. Then I finished university and still I was competing for two more years for my uh, club where I was an athlete at CSMA. It means clubs, sport club of workers. And then uh, I was national champion. It was pretty hard because I have a, I was born with a spina bifida. And then uh, as a student, I was uh, studying and then uh, making new exercises to uh, make possible for me to be an athlete with uh, this uh, problem. It wasn't a wide one, but still I have two of my vertebrates were pretty opened and then uh, created several times very serious problems. It, it happened that a year I couldn't actually barely moving. So making those programs, actually it helped me in my life because I was making a lot of people with several, several, several similar problems to be able to survive and then to be a good athlete. I like very much to be a triple jumper, but in the triple jumps, the first step when you do is a huge big shock on your vertebrates. And the doctor said that if I do probably I will paralyze. So then I was just continuing with Olympic weightlifting. And then um, I knew that I don't have a big choice to be uh, very successful especially because of my background and then I never was uh, chosen to go to compete for the national team in a uh, uh, western country so not traveling everywhere they were just I was just competing in this in the town so I decided that better I start a career in coaching now in Romania you start as a uh, regular coach on fourth level now, because I was at University of Physical Education, I started from the third level coaching. And then it takes five years to get 
for examination and to get in a higher uh, qualification, second level or first level, which is first level coaching is like a master level coach. And because I made so quick performances and high level performances that in four years from third level, I was first uh, uh, qualified for the first level coaching. For the first level coaching, you need to make a, a, a very serious experiment, but you need to defend in front of the uh, Olympic Committee, in front of the Weightlifting Federation. That was my famous complex exercises. And then uh, I was choosing a lot of athletes for this, hundreds of athletes actually, but uh, I had one kid who I was uh, recruiting a few months before who was with a rheumatic heart disease and rickets and uh, he was age of 15, 37 kilos. And then uh, he looks like a skeleton with a big stomach. And then so uh, I put him as a, uh, a model for my experiment and I was reporting every day, everything what he was doing, how many set sets, how many repetitions, how he was doing. And then I followed his activities and in three years from 37 kilos, his name is Dragomir Choroslan. And then in uh, three years, he became 65 kilos and European record holder. He was clean and jerking 158 and a half kilos in 67 and a half kilos weight class. So it was amazing performance. And then Dragomir, of course, became member of national team, member of Olympic team, and he had a very successful career. He was uh, actually uh, the head coach for uh, Olympic Committee uh, here in uh, Colorado Springs for United States. And now he's working uh, for US Olympic Committee International Junior uh, Athletes Recruiting or something like I don't know exactly. Let, let, me, let me ask you a couple of shorter questions. So, so I'll go back to, to, to where you were born. So you were born in Hungary. Yes. In the city of Sekehid. Yes. Which now is Sokuen Bihor. Yes. The, the Romanian name. And then you, your family moved to Kolozsvár or Kluzsnapoka when you were... Uh, 13 years 13, old. 13, about 13 years old. Okay. So you were the national Olympic weightlifting coach to several different countries. First to Romania. Yes. Then to Korea. Yes. South Korea. So after, when I defected uh, in 1982... The International Weightlifting Federation uh, was supporting my activities and then uh, they uh, made the contact with the South Korean Olympic Committee and then I was invited for a uh, contract to get for the 1986 Asiatic Games and 88 Olympics to be their head coach. And for different kind of uh, philosophical reason, I was uh, uh, giving up the job after three or four months and I came back in the United States and then I was looking for jobs. I made more than 99 uh, resumes. I sent everywhere, uh, professional teams, colleges, uh, universities, and finally two of them, University of Texas from Austin and University of Texas A&M for Brian College Station. They were inviting me and I choose uh, the Aggies for the most, the most important reason it was smaller town. Mm -hmm. and then a big, a big tradition of, of Aggieland. And so I love very much. And then that's why I choose that school. Mm -hmm. 
So here you are, a Hungarian, born in Hungary, but after your first birthday, you end up living in Romania. Um, and you, you have an interesting way to, you were, like I said, National Olympic weightlifting coach to Romania, then to Korea, then you, you thought about being the National Olympic weightlifting coach yes. to the United States. Yes. But you had an interesting way of coming to the sport because you were born with spinal bifida, which is uh, uh, not necessarily the, the condition that you want to have if you're going to be an athlete or a performance <laughs> athlete. Um, you started out as a violinist. Um, you just told us about the story, how uh, you were uh, attacked in the street and asked to press out your violin and how this motivated you to go on and, um, and become stronger and, and do more sports and, and, and take care of your body so you wouldn't be so skinny and weak. Um, and you actually wanted to study foreign diplomacy which because of the political situation in Romania at the time, your parents having been landowners, um, it was not easy for you to study at the time. So you kind of fell into studying physical education and then went on at university to perfect yourself as a coach and come up with different programs and work with different uh, athletes or with, with individuals with different uh, physical, quote-unquote, handicaps. And I know that you now, like you said as well, you've worked with different uh, groups. I know you work with uh, paraplegics right now. You've had several different types of athletes, not just performance athletes, but from, from individuals uh uh, from the general population with different uh, physical ailments as well that you've helped. But let's go back to those early years. Already in college, you were in, you were studying with another famous coach, Bea Caroli. Caroli. Well, everybody knows in English as Caroli, exactly. Caroli <coughs> Bela in Hungarian. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Yes, we were uh, friends before the college and then we were in the same group actually and then in the uh, catalog, it was Istvan Javorek and Béla Károly. So she, he followed me in the catalog. <laughs> and then, so, oh, that's and, right, because uh, alphabetically. alphabetically. Oh, that's right. Okay. right, right. And then so we were colleagues and then uh, they did very well together. And then it was very funny because in a boxing class, but had, we had one or two semesters boxing also. And then uh, I couldn't box with anyone because I was too strong in my weight class for other regular college students. They were not boxers. So always I have to box with bigger guys. So Bela was, I was uh, 75 kilos and Bela was uh, 105 kilos. So, <laughs> and I was 5'10 and he was 6'5 uh, or 6'6. So, and then uh, we were boxing and he always was raising his arms up. And then I felt so good and with the left hook, I hit in his liver so hard that he got a cramp. And then from the cramp, he was making an uppercut and knocked me out. He knocked you out? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and then I had amnesia for a few minutes and then a few seconds. And then uh, that like millions of bells were ringing in my head. And then uh, I was asking where I am. And then I remember one of my colleague, Attila Kish, he said, Istvan, we are in the gym boxing. As hopes came up yeah. everything and then I, I, I got back in the normal uh, memory and so it was very interesting and they, we were colleagues and friends and after he defected in 1981 uh, my life became pretty unstable in Romania I mean I felt the pressure and the, the followers I mean the following that it was a kind of shade 
following all of my activities everywhere. So, um, because you also were friends with him, and, yes, mm. yes, and then we were friends, very good friends, and then he defected from Romania. So, you ended up working with Bela later on. Uh, you, you met up again in, in Houston, Texas, yes. So, when I uh, came back from uh, Korea, and then uh, I was uh, waiting to get a job in the United States, and then uh, Bela was preparing for the 1984 Olympics. And then uh, he said, come here and help me with the new young kids and coach the kids. And then because he was doing uh, Mary Lou Retton and Kathy Johnson, all of those famous athletes. And then, uh, and then he was very busy with them. So I was actually uh, helping him for the 84 Olympics, working with young kids, beginners. And then so uh, in the meantime, I got the invitation for Texas A&M. And then uh, I went to College Station and uh, I started my coaching career there. Mm -hmm. I was the assistant conditioning coach for football. I was uh, the field events head coach, field events coach for uh, track and field and then all sports conditioning coach. So I was doing for uh, track and field, basketball, volleyball, swimming, tennis, all of those sports. And then uh, I was doing like assistant coach for football also. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but we, I'm going to go back still, uh, still to Romania. So in Romania, you're dealing with, because we're, like, we're interested in, in language and culture. So you first studied in Hungarian, right? In, in school, you went to school in Hungarian. In Hungarian, but it was mandatory Romanian, Russian. To and study, then, okay. Yes. And then, but then college you did in Romanian. In Romanian language. College you did already, or university you did already in Romanian. Yes. And then when you started coaching, then you had, I imagine, Hungarian and Romanian athletes. I had uh, Hungarian kids, Romanian kids, German kids, mm -hmm. and also being a very proletariat neighborhood, uh, I had Roma kids also. Right, from the, from, was it Iris or? Iris, Iris neighborhood, right. That's right, okay. But um, th there's also the Roma language, so... Did the, did, the, did the Roma kids, for example, speak in, in they, Roma? Some of them, no, some of them, they, uh, they were speaking Hungarian, some of them were speaking Romanian. It depends from what uh, But did they speak they also coming. Roma? Uh, I don't know. Roma, I never yeah, speak yeah, with okay, them. Okay. I never spoke with them, so I don't know. And German? Was German spoken at the gym as well? Or no, not? no, no, no. They it was either speaking, Hungarian or Romanian. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Much more they spoke. Uh, the German kids, much more Saxons, they were in Kolozsvar, they spoke Hungarian. Okay, okay. So you were the National Olympic weightlifting coach to Romania, and you, you had athletes, Hungarian, Romanian, German athletes, and this was one of the problems, the political problems that you had a little bit, wasn't it? Or, yes, yeah. yes. So uh, the problem, it was this. Uh, first of all, being in that time, Kolozsvar had much more Hungarian, the ratio of population were more Hungarian than Romanians, and then, uh, of course, from this reason, I had more Hungarian athletes. But it wasn't a big deal. It was something, certain time that we were telling that why I am speaking Hungarians. But I had to speak Hungarian with mm -hmm. them because those kids didn't speak Romanian yet. So this wasn't. It was an issue, but still, I was handling pretty well because I had already so many Romanian national champs. Okay, like Dragomir Choroslan, with a Romanian kid, and who also spoke perfect Hungarian. And then, uh, who's here now? He's, yes, he's, he's here in, in Colorado Springs. Uh, my issues were different. I had uh, one of my athletes who was supposed to be a member of Olympic team, and then uh, he was a Romanian kid, 
and uh, he was Baptist and the local uh, authorities were asking me to talk with him to renounce on his religion. To give up his religion to because give up, yeah, with because, the Communist Party it yes, wasn't allowed to right. have an official religion. Exactly. And then I told to the authorities, I'm sorry, I am a coach. I am coaching. You go and tell him to renounce the... So they didn't like that. So I had another negative point. Then I had a kid, uh, you know very well the family, uh, Turk Janos. And then, uh, so his father was a political dissident. And then uh, he was fighting for Transylvania to be free and then to be a free part of, of the world, like a little uh, republic. And then so he was tortured, he was uh, uh, psychologically tortured, jailed and hospitalized and everything. And then, so after a while they let him uh, to be in the city and then uh, I remember he has to go just with his wife everywhere and mm -hmm. then so and then uh, he was coming to the gym to meet his son because his son Janusz was my athlete and a very nice young kid he was coming and then introduced himself and I was asking him that uh, about what happened with the politics he was just this oh we, don't, we cannot do about this talking about this and then so next day I was called the factory who was sponsoring my club, the Klujano, the Dermata factory, was 11,000 employee. So he has his own communist party uh, uh, office, he has his own uh, secret service office, the uh, Securitate office, and then it was a colonel. Uh, and then uh, he was uh, asking me, he invited me in his office uh, to report what I was talking with the about so I, said, I, I said, wait a second, how the heck they know the name of it? So they were informant everywhere. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, he was coming for his uh, son because his son is an athlete. Do I, should I talk, uh, threw him out from the gym? They said, no, no, no. So I said, I cannot, I cannot stop anyone to come on the street who comes to my gym. And then so there were these problems, you know, always happened several of these issues, which was pretty bothering me, you know. One day, Nikolai Ceausescu, the, uh, dictator? the dictator, the secretary of the Romanian Communist Party, made a speech because the economy was very down and then uh, we felt the pressure that, you know, remember that toilet paper in the hotels, they gave you one meter cut in a half for each person and then uh, it was misery everywhere, People, long lines staying for lines in the early morning for everything. And then uh, he said that doesn't matter how hard it is for us, doesn't matter if you eat from now on just grass, but still we will build up the communism. So the speech was in the TV, in the newspaper, everything. So next morning when I started my, uh, my, my program with my athletes, I told them in the gym that, gentlemen, today for lunch we will have uh, dandelion roots. <laughs> Which n now we eat that it's it's yes. it's, it's a rugula. Yes. So, so I said then the lion roots and some other uh, other weeds, and then uh, next morning I was called again to the, to the... Colon colonel, and then uh, and said, Comrade Yavorek, what is how about the then the lion roots? I wasn't scared, so I said, Oh yes, 
I told to my athletes, I said, we need to build up the communism. We don't care about all of these capitalistic mentalities to destroy our country, our economy. We eat them the lion root, but still we build up and we beat everyone in the Olympics. So he was so confused that he didn't know what to believe now, you mm -hmm. know. So I realized that my gym was full with informants. And those informants were not volunteer. Those informants were... They were these young poor kids, they pushed them to do it. Mm -hmm. One of them I know, I don't tell names, he was coming to me and told me that a, a, a captain was coming to his school and then uh, took him away apart from the classes and asking him to report what I am saying and what I am doing in the gym. Mm -hmm. So that was the lifestyle. So all of this was accumulating and I felt the terrible pressure and uh, always after Bela was defecting, uh, always was, what is my relationship with Bela and what I am doing this, what I am doing there, but I don't ask the Baptist athlete to, uh, to um, re uh, re refuse his religion, to give up his religion, why I let the parents of, of the kid to come in the gym because he's a political dissident. And then, uh, so all of these issues were accumulating and I felt the pressure and I felt that for my family, and then for you and then for our future is the best way to leave this this uh, terrible society mm, okay. it was a hard decision mm. were you ever in, in uh, olympic training camp with nadia komanich or anything did you ever uh... i i met them several times uh, back in bucharest i was coaching up at olympic training center uh, 23 august uh, olympic training center I was uh, coaching there and then Bela and Marta Karoli, Karoli, all of them, they were my colleagues and friends. And then uh, the gymnastic team was there with Teodora Ungurianu, Nadja Komanic, and then uh, uh, several times we were sitting together and talking together. So I met them several times. Actually, in one competition in, in Cluj, Napkolozsvár, uh, you were with me at the competition in the big uh, sports stadium. And then I took uh, Nadja and Ungurianu to you and they were kissing you. I don't remember, really. Yes. I've been kissed by Teodora yes. Ungurani yeah. and, and Nadia Komanich. Oh. Right. I just remember watching TV and um, waving to, Nad to Nadia Komanich because I thought she was behind the TV. Yes. Do you remember that? So yes. I, I would yes. wave to her uh, in yes. TV and yes. I thought she but was... But you met, I mean, I was taking you to them at the state, at the uh, big uh, uh, gymnastic, uh, not gymnastic, sport hall and then uh, Bela was there and then they came, I mean, I was asking and they were kissing you. <laughs> yes. That's funny. Okay. We shouldn't have in that time a mobile phone to make a picture of it. Oh, yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been yes. nice. So the other problem, if, if, if I may ask you, you also had a newspaper column and a radio show yes. in, in Kurosvar. Yes, yes. And uh, I know you said that... Uh, Janos and Arpi Török's father was political and kind of uh, talked about Hungarian and Transylvanian, sorry, Transylvanian independence. But you kind of talked a little bit about Transylvanian independence as well, didn't you? Or... Um, you know, I write. I was writing for several newspapers and magazines. Uh, if you munkash, I had a column. Uh, Lagos Bajnokok, it means champions with a, a school name on it. And then I had Yo Barat for the young kids on that magazine. Uh, I was writing, uh, I had a column, but I was writing articles regularly. 
then I had uh, the factory had a newspaper, Munkás Élet, and then I had a column there where I put exercises for the workers. Actually, I developed a program for every day at 10.50, they start the work. I was convincing the factory administration to let to do it and then increase the productivity. They stopped the activities. I had 130 some instructors and then I had a microphone. It was re recorded all of my speeches. And then I said, please stop the work, open the windows, and then instructors stand up on the tables. <laughs> and then they had that daily program. I had like 50 different programs. And then 10 minutes with open windows, they were exercising. And then the, I don't know how you say in English, the chalet. Uh, I don't know. When they work on the assembly line and they make some mistake, those pieces need to throw away. Yeah, yeah. So that is a big, big uh, uh, waste. Waste. And then so doing the 15 minutes of, actually not 10, it's 15 minutes of exercising, the productivity was improving. Absolutely. Why? Mm -hmm. Why? The psychology, the workers, when they got something free, they are happy. They got the money and they didn't do anything, they're just exercising, <laughs> you know? It's very interesting. Mm. So they were very happy and then it was a very successful program. Mm. And then so I was doing that. But so so you had so you were writing for several different oh, newspapers yes. and, and then, then and I was writing to uh if you munkash Yobarat was a national magazine. I wrote also to Elure in Igorshag. And then I had a uh, every Saturday noon, a half hour, and then Monday uh Monday morning a half hour. Uh, when I was uh, reporting all of the performances of athletes. It was Yavar Export and Music. It was something like that. Uh, my radio show. Of, yes, yes. It was a very famous, uh, very uh, good friend of mine, Vajda Janos, who was the director of the program. Unfortunately, he died. And then uh, uh, he enjoyed very much with, with other colleague of mine, Nagy Peter. Both of us, we were reporting. He was in track and field, and I was reporting other part of the sport. It was a very good. People was listening those shows, and then I had several times on the national TV one minute uh, exercise. Really? <laughs> yes. That's funny. Okay, but you but you made some political comments in these newspapers and radio shows, or not? Um, no, no, I didn't make on on the papers because. What you write down it stays forever. So uh, I was pretty, uh, you know, I learned how to survive in that society. So uh, I never, I, I never, no, I didn't want any time to, to start to touch something political in a paper. Because I learned as a young kid that the words are flying away, not anymore now. <laughs> but in oh, that true. time, and then which is written down, it stays forever. Mm. So I didn't want to create myself problems from from writing and something not the right way. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. I was very careful on that. Okay, so so here you are, a Hungarian in Romania, national coach, with some political problems, and you go to Germany on a competition to the yes. Danube Cup. Yes. And decide to yes. finally make the move yes. and cut ties yes. with Romania. Yes. yes. So uh, how I told you, the pressure was terrible on me. And then I felt that sooner or later I will have, a, I will have serious problems. Because you know very well, in a 
dictatorship, they can decide what they want. So I felt that sooner or later, probably they will eliminate me from the sport life or they find something against me. And then, so that's why I was very careful and then thinking very well what happened. But I couldn't go, they didn't let me to travel to the West. So my athletes were complaining. Like in Moscow, they were four of my athletes from six Olympic lifters, four of them were from my club. Other international competition. Although Moscow is not West anymore. Yes. Yeah, but, yeah uh, but, but just tell you, other you places, uh, there were in, in Western countries, four or five athletes of mine were competing and I did not because I didn't get the visa. So my athletes were always complaining, how come the coach you are never come with us in any competition? So I was complaining on my own. And then uh, they told me, because you are not member of the Communist Party. I said, huh, that is so important. If you are member, then you can travel to the West. They said, yes, because then we trust you. So I applied. And then, of course, the factory, the, the organization, which I was a part of it, you know, it was 11,000 employees. And then so everybody knew me. And so when I said that I would like, to, oh, okay, come on, no problem. We don't care because we are also just paper, on the paper communists, you know, <laughs> a lot of them. So I was uh, accepted and it was a big article in a paper that Kamarad Javorek is member of our communist party. I don't know what. So I got the visa. And then, and when I get the visa, I made already plans how to stay outside. So I was collecting uh, phone numbers, addresses from some people who defected a few years earlier, but I didn't write down because I knew that at the border we'll check my they, papers. They would check it. So I was memorizing everything, phone numbers and addresses everything in my head. I was practicing, practicing for weeks and weeks and weeks. So then they couldn't find anything. Several times it happened before because I had one of my uh, coach colleague from other club who was uh, trying to make everything negative against me. And then he was reporting like I was traveling in Hungary or Czechoslovakia. And then I was completely uh, undressed. Undressed, I had to step up on the bench and between Cavity my, searched. Yes, yes, completely everything. And so I knew this and then so I thought, okay, I'm going in West Germany. Of course, would happen same thing. So I was ready. When uh, we arrived in Germany, first thing it was that I called those numbers <laughs> mm. to make the contact. And one of them, it was uh, uh, Agis' uh, brother. Mm-hmm. And then so, and then uh, I was telling them that uh, they came to the competition in Donaueschingen and I told them that I would like to defect. And so uh, we agreed that after the competition is over, I didn't want to make anything illegal. So I finished the competition and said, then you wait for me after the, during the banquet and then you put me in the car. So they arrived, I mean, uh, the competition was over and the, the banquet, I wanted to leave and I told to Dragomir and to Tarsnadi, Ishvan Tarsnadi, that uh, I, I leave. I told them before. I told them if they want to defect with me, that's okay. And then actually they were offering for Tarsnadi a big job at the protein factory in uh, another city in Berlin, I think. Like he got like 3,000 Deutschmark in that time uh, just to stay and then to make uh, 
advertising for the mm-hmm. factory. Mm-hmm. And then he said, no, I have a little newborn baby. And I said, okay. And then Dragomir either doesn't want to defect with me. So, but, but I Dragomir them, left later. Uh, yes, but he came after the community. Uh, after the, over. the fall of yes. The, mm. So then uh, I was kissing them, hugging them before in the area there nobody saw it. And then I wanted to leave. I told them I am leaving now. And then I went to get out to the door. And then it was a, uh, a sport hall, and it was this kind of revolving. No, yes. no. And then I tried to pull in this way the door and couldn't open. <laughs> and I went back, and then my heart was beating this, and then. Uh, Tashnai said, Pishtabachi, what happened? I said, they locked the door. <laughs> and they said, guy, try to get in the other side. When the waiters are coming, you can go out there. And I said, no way. And I saw that the waiters were coming again on that door. <laughs> so I went back again, and then the door is locked. So I made a few steps back, and I saw, I go and I break the door and I run. And then the waiters with the leg was pushing in this way with the food in his hand, was pushing the door and came in. I went outside. I went in the hotel. Nobody was in the hotel. And then uh, the receptionist guy was watching some soccer game. And then so I went up. I picked up my luggage. Down it was uh, waiting for me, Zoltan. I got in his car and I went to uh, Donaueschingen. And two days later... I was reporting. I mean, at midnight, no, later on, I called the hotel and I told to the delegate, who was the official delegate of the competition from Romania, I said, I'm so sorry, but I'm not returning home. And then that time, later on, Tarsnadi and other people were telling me the doctor who was with me in the same room, he got hysterical because he said, no, we need to find him. We need to take him back. So he was the guy who was responsible to keep ah, an to eye keep on you, me. To keep it. Crazy. Yeah, it was, it, and it was very funny because I was telling him so many things in the room before, <laughs> and and then I and so, and then I didn't know. Either. Isn't he the one who pulled my tooth, my first tooth? No, 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 not Doctor Duma. Doctor. Duma. Ah, no, 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 no. This was from Bucharest. Ah, yeah. It was a national team doctor. Okay, okay, okay. So and then two days later, I was practicing to learn some German. And I learned like 25, 30 words. And I went to the Ausländer Amt uh, at the uh, police uh, station. And uh, Frau Keller was her name, but the police officer from the Ausländer Amt. And I went to her and I said, I don't know, kiss the hand or whatever. <laughs> and, then, and then I said that I would like to ask for political asylum for United States. She said, in a moment and then I said oh my god he comes and then he will uh, handcuff me or something and then she came back with a newspaper showing that uh, Ishvan Javorek the coach from Romanian national team disappeared from the team in the midnight and he called and they wrote everything written down that he called the team okay, yeah. and then and then uh, was uh, excusing myself that I'm not returning and then we don't know where is he and then he said I know where is he in front of me. <laughs> and he gave me a copy. And somewhere I have the copy of the okay. newspaper. So it was very funny. And then uh, he was a member of the... He or she? She. 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 Uh, and she was uh, the member of the board of uh, Duisberg Language Institute. Okay. Which uh, foreign people or new immigrants were taking a class there 
to learn German. Mm-hmm. So she said, I will take care of you. And then she was taking me there. And then they gave me a job to be the physical education teacher, 25 different nations. <laughs> Nobody okay. speak, spoke German. I always gave them a, like, there I learned one interesting word, when is wonder, wunderbar. Yeah. And then they were the kids, the, I mean the kids, the foreigners, they learned a new word, wunderschlecht. Wunderschlecht. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is where you, you started. I mean, the, the, there your, your whole uh, national experience opens up, right? Yes, so, so, exactly. so far you're dealing with Hungarians and Romanians yes. and all of a sudden you're in Germany yes. uh, asking for political asylum in the United States. States. Yes. And all of a sudden you're coaching, uh, <laughs> what, how many? 25, 25 nations. 25 different nations of, yes. of kids. So were yes. these immigrant kids? They were, for example, they were different, not, and not just immigrants. They were immigrants, refugees, okay. and then they were students. They were from uh, Nigeria, from Rwanda, from uh, a lot of African countries. And then they were from Albania. They were from Romania. They were from different countries. Okay. And then refugees. Mm-hmm. And then they were uh, like 50 waiters from Ireland who were going to be waiters in a new German hotel in Ireland. And so they, they uh, I mean, also... a, a hotel where a lot of German tourists is coming in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So they need to learn the German. Right. Okay. So, so you were coaching them physical education. Yes. What language did you speak with them? <laughs> uh, Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. And then, so. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then. Uh, but, <laughs> but somehow you understood each other. You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. People find out because they were Spanish also between them and so, and then some people so spoke some French or something. So we found an international language. Everything. That was the, uh, how you call that, the uh, artificial language. Uh, Esperanto. Esperanto. <laughs> this was the kind of Esperanto. And then now imagine that uh, I was asking to give me some chances to study English and they gave me an English-German book and a German-English book. And then I had a Hungarian, German and German Hungarian dictionary of my own. And so from the English German book, I was translating those words <laughs> to try to get somehow because I, they put me in the Sprachlabor and then they put up on my ears and then no way. I didn't understand anything. So, but if you... For, for English though, you, you were supposed to learn English yes. in the Sprachlabor. Okay. Yes, yes. And so I was, it was very nice people. And then, and they said, don't worry, after listening for two, three days, you will catch up something. Okay, okay. And then in the meantime, I was very, very industrious and I tried to find more and more and more words. And then in the meantime, Another emigrant, uh, Hungarian man, man, gave me a dictionary because he emigrated three years earlier. He had the basic English dictionary. It's 850 words which you can speak English. With which you... Uh, which, yeah. Yes, it's, you have to... It's long sentences, everything, but you can uh, express Describe yourself. it, okay. Yes. So 850 so, words. Yes, and then uh, those 850 words, I probably, in three days, I was completely you memorized. memorized them, all of them. I, I did true hard. I learned in six months 5,000 words and I learned the words with the perfect uh, spelling. So behavior I learned in this way, behaviour, 
and then so be, to be sure that I've write down the right way. So that's why it's pretty, I am writing pretty uh, clear in, in English. It's it's only the pronunciation. The pronunciation is different. <laughs> Libit is South South Kansas accent, and then so and then and then. Uh, it used to be a Texas accent. Yes, yeah, but this one is dominates now uh, the, the Kansas accent. So uh, imagine that. Usually, I was 150 words a day I was memorizing. 150 words in Hungarian English and English Hungarian. I made a dictionary, and unfortunately, when I went to Korea, I couldn't carry that many things with me. I left in New York my dictionary. I should save it. 5,000 words were written down in both Hungarian English and English Hungarian by myself. I made my own dictionary. And then, so anyway, after like three months, one night I went to sleep and I got a uh, panic attack. I got a panic attack. I, my breathing was <sighs> very short and very high. And then I knew what it means, panic attack. And I know and knew in that time how I can get over with. I knew that if I would stay there, probably get nuts or crazy. So I took my bike, my bike. One of my friend, Zoltan's friend actually from Brazil, had a bike and he has two Mercedes, so he was uh, giving me the bike. And then- uh, This we, was in, in Germany? In now. Germany, okay. in Donaueschingen, in, in Radovsel. And then so I took the bike midnight and I went in the forest and I was biking for two hours as fast as I can and completely I slowed down. And I came back and next morning I was doing just easy work. And then next day I started again back, 150 words a day. Well, of course the it's pressure is, is tremendous to, to try to put that on yourself, to learn that much in, it's amazing. in a very limited period it's of time. It's amazing. And I was going, uh, like I studied the 150 words and then I took the bike and I went out, there were so many beautiful roads and then I was going on those roads and I was practicing. I was myself speaking, speaking, speaking with, to yourself, seeing, speaking myself, all, all of my thinking, what I was thinking about something I was trying to express in English. Mm -hmm. If you don't speak in that language, you don't think on that language, then you are not proficient in that language. So it was very interesting. And then so I survived this thing. And then when uh, finally I got my visa, it was, uh, like like probably 1945 when they announced the liberation i mean i was so happy and then i was dancing on the street when i got my visa and was waiting for the day to come to the united states and i start the struggle it was hard work it don't nothing easy you know like same thing that you don't you need you need to work for everything you know it's nothing easy and then uh, in, in united states and the same way, not in the United States, everywhere in the world. If you don't work hard, you don't achieve anything. Mm -hmm. Nothing venture, nothing win. Nothing won, exactly. So in Germany, though, you never asked to, to settle down or to have political asylum in Germany. You wanted to transfer to the United States. From the beginning, From the my beginning, idea was, said. I was for that idea to get in United States. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to stay in Germany. No, no. And uh, but you did receive aid from Germany for ten months. Yes, you were the given German, a small the German room government, a... the German government gave me a social help, mm -hmm. and then so I got a, like I if I remember about three hundred fifty German mark a month, and then a little room 
where I can stay. Where, where you and could then, stay. Yes. But that, yeah. that's a tremendous help to oh, yes. have yes. allowed you to survive exactly. the first trans- exactly. 10 months. And plus, you... I get free courses of German uh, language, I mean, uh, English language. English, I mean, think yes. about that. That's yes. amazing yes. as well to yes. have received also, yes. not, you know, not just German language yes. lessons, yes. But, but English. It was good, but it was very hard because it wasn't Hungarian English, it was German English. Sure. But in the meantime, I learned around almost 1,000 German words. Mm. And then I was pretty good. I mean, it's not correct. No, I mean, no daddy does, no, 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 but no, no, I was just right, right. putting some words together. And if I may say this, and don't be don't be offended, okay? But but your English yes. as well. You make a lot of mistakes in English. That's correct. And but you you say everything, and yes. it's always it's it's kind of interesting because that's one of the things, one of the problems that we have with our students. Um, it's it's almost I would almost say there are the students who will like you dare to say everything, and they become completely fluent much faster. And it's, it's a decision that you have to sometimes make, I guess, is, you know, you'd have to really focus on a lot, a lot of grammar. And, and, and actually, I've, I've, <laughs> I've corrected you and you just you don't care. You, right. you really kind of you don't want to you say what you want to say. You say it fast. You, yes. you, you don't. Yes. It's not something that's important to you. It's exactly. just not. In your yeah. field, something that you just don't want to waste any brain capacity on. Oh my God, is it the right tense? Or did I add an extra article? Exactly. Or did I. Exactly. It's very interesting that uh, when I write, I can correct myself and then I can make the sentences very well. I was making a speech uh, for the Olympic Committee and then Harvey Newton was there and then all of like 38, 40 coaches and then. Everything I wrote down to be sure that I read the right way. I started to read and then Harvey said, Steve, nobody understands you when you read. Put the paper down because you know all of them probably much better and then tell by words. Mm. And then everybody understood me. Mm. So reading for me is Mm. very, very hard. Right, and, and and I mean, it's and reading the way you write is really difficult yes. because then where do you put the intonation? One of the things that also, uh, when you sing English songs, especially for example Christmas songs, yes, um, very often you don't know where to where to take your breath. Yes, um, it's, it's it's funny. It, it, it's 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 interesting with that as well. So I actually use you in class several times because most of the time students don't do what you do. But quite the opposite, where they focus so much on grammar and on saying it correctly that they end up not saying at all, not speaking at all. So that's also that's usually the obstacle that I have in class is convincing them to just speak. So yes. so they end up saying things perfectly or nearly almost perfectly, but but it's very uh, slow and very broken up because they're they're trying to think about it. So yes. so that's that's something. So I use you a lot of a lot of times as an example in class because um, it's it has always been fascinating to me. Just like what you said a second ago about coaching these twenty five nationalities of of students, and you know you said what language did you speak? Who knows? And and it's really funny because I've throughout my life observing you. In various situations and how you communicated um, in Eastern Eastern Germany when we were traveling as a family and and you couldn't uh, speak German and you were just I don't know how you communicated but you communicated yes. better than some people who spoke German. Um, same thing. I mean, um, you have always been able to speak to people. Um, so that's that's actually fascinating because 
there must be another level to communication. There is another level to communication other than verbal, other than grammar, other than just the words, a communication through hand gestures, facial expressions, your own personality. Yeah, we didn't accept to be secondary or to be neutral. We wanted to do something and to achieve something and with a very positive attitude. So it's very important that I never was struggling. I mean, we were struggling because we didn't have money or whatever, but I wasn't negative. I was thinking that, oh, tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow we will achieve more. I will do better. With my athletes, I never was giving up. They were injured or something. I said, no problem. We do it better tomorrow, you know? And then we work hard, hard, hard. It was crazy. Four workouts a day, they were damn tired. And then I said, a joke or something, you know? And then we were again getting them up. So that's it means when you have a positive attitude and positive energy in you and you can transfer to other people. Mm. Not everybody has this quality. So that's very important. Why there are some coaches so successful and then same education, same programs, other coaches are not. Mm. Because they don't have that positive energy which they can transfer to other coaches, mm. other athletes or whatever. Okay, so now you were in Germany and you finally did get political asylum in the US. So you first went to New York just briefly. Yes. Then you actually went and coached with Bela, Kari Bela in Houston yes. and then got your job at Texas A&M. The hardest part was New York because I wanted to get a job to get some money and then no way. I was going to the Hungarian uh, meat uh, uh, store <laughs> to serve, to cut meats or something and they said, be sorry, we don't have beef. We got like 50 new immigrants who wants to be there. You know, I went to a, a Pal, what's it? he had the Four season restaurant to be a waiter. I didn't get a job. So I was looking everywhere. So I was uh, painting garages and then painting uh, uh, small apartments to make some extra money. And then, and then it was pretty hard and waiting for get a chance. And then so finally I got the invitation to work for the I got two invitations to get uh, the head coach uh, of Canada or to be the head coach of South Korea. But South Korea offered much more. And so that's why I was choosing South Korea. It was a good experiment because I learned a lot about the the history and the culture of the country. And then, you know, it was a philosophical differences and I came back. So, so let's talk about that. Let's, let's go to, to uh, Korea, South Korea. So all of a sudden here is a Hungarian from Romania who defected to Germany but immigrated with a political asylum to the United States and is now head coach or Olympic weightlifting coach to Korea. South Korea. How, to South Korea. How was this for you? How, how just just try to remember sort of because one of the things we, we talk about a lot in on this podcast is cultural identity. So what was your cultural identity with all this in South Korea? What what were you in South Korea? Were you Hungarian? Were you American? Were you Romanian? Were you what? What do you think you? I was a coach. Okay. I was a coach, and talking about this positive attitude, I knew that I am the boss. I mean, I need to make something. I met with the South Korean uh, uh, minister of sport. And then we had serious meetings about how to make the 88 Olympics, everything. So I knew that I need to 
prove something. I need to make something good. And I was very, uh, not just enthusiastic, but I believed in my own power and my own work. So I wanted to achieve something with their teams and with their, and I, a lot of athletes who I was recruiting later on, they became Olympic champions after I left the country. But, uh, so that's the whole issue that I, I had a translator who was uh, coming and several times was translating. But in the meantime, from the beginning, I let them know that I am the boss. They didn't feel very, very happy about it because it's a very interesting cultural differences. By the way, my luggage was every day opened and tested if it's <laughs> because I was from I was the first East European official in, <laughs> in working for South Korea. And then so I was in the newspapers, I was in the TV always and then and then but in the meantime they were listening my phone because I was very suspicious. I was coming from the Olympic training center to the Olympic committee in a bus and then because North Korea is so close, some uh, spies were coming from North Korea, I heard, and then I was sitting in the bus, and then they just stopped the bus, and three soldiers with guns comes up, they look in the bus, and they come to me, and they identify me, who I am. So I had all of my papers, and then they look, I said, be sure that this guy not from North Korea. <laughs> so it was interesting situation, but it was, in the meantime, it was, it was kind of, uh, it was fun also. But I think it's really interesting how you say that that you were not Hungarian, you were not Romanian, you were not uh, American, you were a coach. Yes. And that's what mattered. Yes. Um, and you used the translator, so you spoke to the translator in English, I assume? Yes. And they translated English-Korean. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I had uh, a uh, Korean-English dictionary and I was learning like 150 words already, and I started to get to feel from their pronunciation what they are talking about. I tried to find some kind of connections between the sentence mm -hmm. and the words, no way. Mm -hmm. After two, three weeks, I started to get more and then learn some words, more and more words, and then probably in a year I would learn Korean. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very interesting. How did the, how did the athletes react to you? Did they, did they also have, do you think it was difficult to, to reach them, you know? So no. As soon as I was introduced to the athletes and I told them what we do, they were very, very positive about what I was telling. Okay, so, so from Korea, you actually got your job at Texas A&M, which is again another cultural change because you went to Aggieville yeah. and you had the Texas students. How, how was it different for you to have the, how, what, what differences did you notice in the, in the Korean, between the Korean and the Texas uh, athletes? So what I told you from the beginning that in Korea, when I went, I said, I am a coach. I went to Texas Sam, I said, I am a coach. And actually I knew that because who hired me told me that they want to learn from me. So that's why I knew that I am in a higher standard for them, position for them, because I am teaching them, the coaches, not just the athletes. So it was a different situation than I didn't come there to learn from them. I came there to teach them. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't tell names, no, he wanted to learn from me uh, how you do the perfect snatch and clean mm -hmm. and jerk, all of those exercises, my programs. 
do you think it doesn't matter as much how well the language is spoken or, or because because I imagine you're showing exercises, you're showing how right movement. So it's it's a different way to communicate as well. So you know? how I told you, they hired me to teach. They did hire me to learn from them. So that's what a big deal. The second one, all of the athletes, they wanted to get from me as much they could get to get better. Football players, all of them, they, hey, I would like to learn more from you to get professional, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the tennis players, I would like to be national champion tennis. So I was the person who they look up and they were expecting from me to teach them more. And then luckily, and I am so happy that I was doing that because still today, how I told you, I have more than 20 students from Texas A&M and then three of them became conditioning coaches on my influence. Actually, I have from JCCC also like five, six of them who became conditioning coaches, but one of them just a few days ago wrote me an email and then so they, they are so happy they were, I was there and teaching them certain different things which they probably wouldn't learn just probably later or never, you know? Mm. So that's what the whole issue that I was, beside of my accent, so they didn't care about my accent because they wanted to learn something from me. Mm, or how well you spoke English, exactly. I mean, because you had something else to teach them. You weren't exactly. teaching them English or, exactly. or, or linguistics or, exactly. or exactly. <laughs> literature even. Sorry. Exactly. And I was always joking and they loved my jokes. And then like, you know, in the gym, the football players, uh, uh, the African-American players, they wanted to listen rap music. Uh, the Texas players, they wanted to listen uh, country music. Then the foreign players, they want to learn, I don't know, some other languages or the California, they wanted to learn more rock and roll or something, you know, so, and then it was one hour for Coach Pops when we listened to symphonic music. They were so angry, but, but they, at least they loved it later on. Okay, so, so okay, so that, that, that's something that you've always done. Uh, so you had all these athletes who were just listening to different types of music, but what one hour in the gym was symphonical music. Yes. So, so classical music. Because classical your... music. <laughs> I can't even, I don't remember that, but I can't imagine all these uh, Texas A&M athletes listening to classical music exactly. and having to do their workouts. Exactly. <laughs> I know now you make your athletes listen to Hungarian folk music. So. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so who were some of your athletes? I, I, I remember um, Ray Childress, Shea Walker, Randy yes. Barnes, yes. Kendrell, what Louis, was his name? Louis Cheek. Who you said? He was a he was a track. Kendrick Kendrick Wesley Kendrick Wesley. Oh, yes, yes. He I was a four hundred meter sprinter. That's right. Yes. He was awesome. He was great. Wasn't yes, he? He was yes, really good. yes. He was the guy that uh, he qualified for the New York had that amazing. I don't remember the name of the of the competition in February was a big track and field meet indoor, and then uh, he qualified for the four hundred meter uh, for the four hundred meters event. And then uh, I told him that, listen, you don't have chance to win or to get a good, because they were so many international great athletes. I said, you go out as fast as you can. So on the first 300 meters, he was over the world record time. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what? the whole, the reporters, everyone, it's amazing. Who is this gentleman <laughs> from Texas? <laughs> his, his, his time is more under the world record. <laughs> And, and then he was dying. The, the last hundred meters. <laughs> he finished the last one. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> he was almost able to walk in. So, but <laughs> he did a good school record actually. Not not in that way. I exaggerating. But he 
he lost his breath. <laughs> of course, yeah. But in the first 300 meters, he was making the world record. <laughs> That's funny. He was funny. I could do it because he was, he said, oh, we do it. We do that. You know, and then he was a funny guy. I love him very much. And okay. And so then you decided to come to Kansas where I think you found your home. Okay. So why I did that? I loved the university. I love the tradition of Texan CNM. But uh, it, was, it has a culture of its own with yes. the bonfire and the Everything. chants and the yell but, leaders and the... It was so many different sports when I, I made those amazing athletes. So it wasn't a reason that I didn't want to stay at Texas A&M, where I had amazing op- opportunity. But Texas, it wasn't for me. Mm. The fourth season was missing so much. When I arrived in Kansas and I smelled the air at the airport, I felt like in Kolosvar. Mm. So I felt at home. So when we were in Kansas, when we arrived and we said, we had an accent. They said, oh, very nice accent. Where are you from? We are from Europe, from Hungary. Oh, it's great. It's interesting that, it's interesting that you went all around the world. You, you went from Romania to Germany, to New York, then to Korea, then to the southern part of the United States in Texas. And then you end up feeling at home in Bullseye, right in the middle of the United States, in the heartland, in the Midwest. That's interesting. And you say one of the reasons is the the Four Seasons, the people being so welcoming, Kansas Cityans. uh, And I have to say, I I feel this as well. uh, Every time I I return, people are very relaxed and kind and friendly and generous and polite. Um, I cannot say enough good things about Kansas Cityans. So so you found your home here after yes. after yes. kind of yes. being lost yes. in the world. And then um, I tell you a few stories about this and then I tell you something back to the coaching in different parts of the world. I felt always that is my home. So when I defected, I knew I studied psychology. So I knew that if you think back in the past or you want to get the same style of life or same habits or same kind of environment then you cannot find it and you get negative and then sick or homesick or whatever so i knew all of these issues and i said no i need to start a new life so i need completely to block and close what happened in the past that i have good memories everything but i don't want to destroy my life thinking back on the past so i need to think ahead what happened tomorrow, what will be with my family, and how I settle up my life. So that was the most important. And then Kansas was helping me to get this positive attitude. Beside that the life was very hard. We started with a lot of uh, uh, <laughs> negative money, you know. We had so much debt, because normal. We need to get education for you. We need to support everything. We need to get good clothes and good furniture and everything. So, but still we were thinking in that way that next day will be better. Next day will be more fun and more money. And then so we never, we never were looking back in the past. That destroys your life. Okay. Now back about the coaching. How many counties I was coaching. And I told you that when I was coaching in Korea, I was a coach. When I coached in Romania, I was a coach. United States, Texas A&M, JCCC, didn't matter. Same thing at JCCC. I was the guy who was teaching them, 
who I was giving them, they didn't have conditioning program. They didn't have for all sports coaching. Right now, the Hungarian uh, uh, coaches who once, they want from me because they learned that I was one of the guy who developed the American all sport conditioning program. Because when I came in this country in 1983, everything was in kindergarten, the conditioning programs. I was a part of it with some other foreigners together, with Todor Pompa, with uh, Mike Yassis, and then with Ken Cantor, and all of those people who were helping to make this program. And back to the coaches. It was in uh, 1983, it was uh, the American Championship. It was an international competition in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was invited and I went there. It, I met with Dr. Tamás Ayan and then he was coming with an athlete, with uh, Batsako Peter. He was the Olympic champion. But they didn't bring a coach because they didn't have money for financial for that. So he was coming as a delegate. He was the general secretary of International Weightlifting Federation and then Batsako without coach. And he needs to compete. Dr. Tamar Shayan, who is a very good friend of mine, was asking me, Istvan, do you want to coach uh, Batsako? I said, yes. So I said, Bill, uh, B- Peter, what is your style? How you do the warm-up? Let's see. I follow you, everything. Anyway, he did Hungarian national records. I never met him before in my life. And then we became good friends. Unfortunately, poor guy, he died of some diseases at a very young age. But uh, that's the way. You need to adjust yourself to any kind of situations. That's the positive attitude. That's when you are self-confident. That's the way when you know that you know something what some other people also know, but in this place, they didn't know. Mm-hmm. What were you national champion for? Weightlifting. You were the na- national champion for yeah, I, two years. Two years in a row, the club, Chase MA, my club, won the national team championships in a row and a big part of that was me because I was introducing in the Romanian weightlifting program the track and field events because I considered that the base and then so it was weightlifting and plus three track events a long jump five long jumps together and so anyway and then that's the way I prepared the club team actually on all of those events. But you were national champion yourself. Yes, in 1966 national championship, I won the national championship title in snatch and then been clean and jerk. Mm -hmm. Okay. I lost in the total. It was very interesting, but this was the politics of the country. On the press exercise, there were three exercises, press, snatch and clean and jerk. On the press exercises, they knew that I am very good but that's the exercise where you really can cheat. So the referees were one of them who was from Turgumuresh, one of them was from Bucharest, one of them was from other city. And then my coach was behind the curtain and he heard when the guy who's actually beat me on the total, his coach from Dinamo Bucharest was telling to these coaches, if you give to Yavorek the press exercise heavier weights, then your athletes are not coming to the military club. Mm. So I started, I was already pressing 130 kilos and then I started 115 kilos. It was easy, no way to take away from me. 
on 120 kilos when I was pressing, then they said it's not good. So two times I was repeating that no good and I pressed easy. I was 10 kilos under my best performance. And then so I lost the title on scale. Uh, actually on 147 kilos clean and jerk when I was with the bar on my chest, then I wanted to go to do the jerk. The referee, uh, the official from the secretary said, with this result, Javara got national champ. I collapsed. Mm. I collapsed. Mm. So they didn't want Javorek to win the nationals in total. Mm. But anyway, that's why I said no any reason to fight because it, it's it's everywhere they wanted to put something against me and then I couldn't mm. travel. So why to kill my back? Now back to the problem with the spina bifida. Actually, from everything negative, I took the positive. I developed a program for back rehabilitation, which I guarantee everyone we have serious back problems, you know, of course there are something which you have surgery, but I can recover mm. because I developed for my spina bifida, this exercise program with weights, which I made corrections of, of scoliosis, lordosis, kyphosis. I had students who had rots in her back uh, they did surgery to cor correct her scoliosis and still was pushing back. The muscles was too strong. And then I was signing the papers with the parent that six weeks, six months will be very hard, very painful. And then after six months, I corrected all of those rods back in the right position. And then when they showed to the doctor, the doctor said, huh, very interesting. Mm. I have the uh, x-ray still, I kept, kept the x-ray. So anyway, I made people with injuries. I made a student who uh, drunk driving uh, paralyzed and then he was tied into the wheelchair and if it's not tied from his chest would fall forward and dies. Mm -hmm. He couldn't breathe. Uh, and I checked his musculature on his neck and his lower back here, trapezius and then some supporting muscles on his back. And then I started his life in it. So I was doing exercises and then is in my book, the picture of him after a year of doing these programs, his hands are free, not tight him and stays in this position. Mm -hmm. He was holding his position. So you can do amazing things. Sure. You know, people with uh, one leg paralyzed, I made him good. Uh, one of the professional baseball player who became, for some reason, uh, he didn't get further in the career. He became a coach at JCCC and then the mower tractor fell on his leg and he paralyzed his right leg. It was just bones and skin. And then same thing, I was pinching his leg and then he had nerves. I said, wait mm. a second, you have nerves in your leg. Mm. So I made a program for him. I know his name and right now I contacted him. I want to talk with him again. And then uh, he was walking with a stick mm. and then limping badly mm. after a year. I was okay. doing every day. He was walking with those stick and comp uh, not exactly same shape, but fantastic okay. improvement. Who would you consider were your most famous athletes that you worked with? Huh. Well, Istvan Tosnadi, who won at the uh, 1984 Olympics. Yes, Heavy Los Angeles. Heavyweight? Yes, heavyweight class, right. In Los Angeles? He Dragomir won, the, he won the silver medal, right. And then yes. Dragomir Charoslan? Dragomir Charoslan in 75 kilos weight class. Also at the time. 84. Yes. At the 84 Olympics. Yes, 84 Olympics. Bronze medalist. Bronze medalist, right. And then it, it was 
personally, actually, the Olympic title was up for him and nobody knows, he doesn't know the reason why he dropped the weight and then okay. so became a silver medalist. Who, who else? Who else uh, Randy Barnes, Olympic champion, world record holder, Olympic record holder in, in shot put. Okay. Okay. Then uh, I had uh, Wayne Simeon, a professional basketball and then uh, he played for Miami Heat, and then uh, he was a KU player. Karim Raj, who played for Mizu, and then uh, University of Missouri, and then... Basketball. Uh, yes, and then he was also playing for uh, Charlotte Bobcats and for Miami Heat and LA Lakers. Mm -hmm. His brother, younger brother, Brandon Rush, his older brother, Jaron Rush, unfortunately, he uh, wasn't uh, recruited for the... NBA, beside that, he was considered one of the best players in, in as a junior in that time in the world. I had Ed Kaminsky in uh, Texas at uh, Johnson County Community College, uh, who was a uh, javelin thrower, and so he was uh, in Olympics, three Olympics. Uh, Wesley Barnett was my best Olympic weightlifter, and then Jim Dice was a great weightlifter also, but Wesley Barnett was the athlete who really uh, developed further and then he became silver medalist at the world championship he was one of the proof of my methodology of clean preparation mm -hmm. he was an amazing athlete mm -hmm. and you've held coaching seminars for the chicago bulls you've held coaching programs for the english professional rugby federation yes you have coached I was lecturing at the Irish Strength Symposium. At the Irish yes, Strength yes, Symposium. Yes. Ten times. Imagine, nine, nine times in a row. So nine years in a row, the National Strength Coach Association invited me to be one of their main uh, presenter lecturing at the National Conference. Several times you were with us there. And then after that later, when I got older, they invited me again. So I was ten times which is nobody worth 10 times to speech to speak at the National Strength Coach Association Conference. Mm -hmm. And they choose me to be a uh, Hall of Fame for National Strength Coach Association. And yeah, then, exactly, you're a Hall and of then Romania, after I defected first, they considered me a uh, enemy of Romanian socialist uh, society. And after the revolution, and then when Romania became democracy, in a sudden I got a letter to send uh, my photos and then they gave me the Merited Coach of Romania, which is the highest distinction. Professor Emeritus. Yes, I became Hall of Fame, Hall of Famer for Missouri Valley Weightlifting. And then uh, I also the National Strength Coach Association Hall of Famer, Merited Coach of Romania. And then after I finished, after 30 years of teaching and coaching at JCCC, I was applying for Emeritus status and then I got and I'm emeritus teacher, professor of Johnson County Community College. I have my office, I have my computer. Oh, you still have uh, it at yes, Jessica? Yes. Okay. You've been featured in Men's Health. Yes. In, can you say some of the magazines you've been featured uh, in? I wrote over 100 uh, publications in different international and national magazines. Two biggest magazines are the Muscle and Fitness magazine, and the other one is the Men's Health magazine, both of them international magazine. It's very interesting that both magazines of international and then all of the American soldiers around the world when uh, they were 
in different uh, stations, they were sending me letters, they, they want to learn my exercises. It's a very interesting story about this. One of my uh, soldiers, I call him my soldier, who was doing my program, I sent them all of them, t-shirts, programs, uh, different other, other uh, little gifts, and then free DVDs and everything. And this young man was uh, fighting in Iraq, then he's fighting in, in uh, Afghanistan, and then uh, we were keeping in touch for more than eight years. And then he just in a sudden disappeared. And then I couldn't find him. And then after like one and a half year, he sent me from a hospital from uh, California that he's in a veteran hospital, injury after, uh, during the war, and he didn't want to mention me the injury. And he said, I would like to ask you to send us program for injured veterans for within wheelchair and then injured. So I made a program and then uh, I sent it to him. I have the bigger file of it. And then uh, after like five or six months, I got a beautiful, beautiful diploma from the American army that they gave me the special honor certificate for helping the American injured veterans. veterans. Oh, that's nice. That's very nice. You've always been like that. You've always helped. Uh, yes. You've always helped. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, kids from inner city, inner city youth that you've always helped. Yes. That you've yes. helped uh, other yeah. athletes who showed potential and. And when I make, I was working for money in my private business, and always I had five, six kids who never paid a penny because they were poor kids. So I was helping them. So that's the way. That's the best way. The best feeling to give. Okay. So. Your name is Yavorek, which is a Czech name, right? It means tree of Yavor. Okay. Yavorfa. What do you consider yourself? Hungarian. Okay. Hungarian-American? Yes. I mean, I, I am American, but as a nationality, I am Hungarian. So, uh, I really, I don't like that, that, you know, uh, this kind of American, that kind of American. I am American, poor. Everybody in this country should be American. And then you can't keep your nationality identity and then that's other story. For your national heritage? Yeah, national heritage and then identity. But in the meantime, you need to accept the culture, you need to accept the tradition, everything which happened in this country where you choose on your own. So I choose this country, so shouldn't be... uh, nice and then and then honest not to respect the rules and then the tradition and the culture of this country which accepted me here and then gave me a chance to develop that's the biggest deal back in romania in my own country where i lived i was blocked because they considered me too revolutionary i didn't respect like bela caroli bar caroli but the same thing we both of us we were considered uh, suspicious and then not respecting what that comrade we need to do exactly this everyone that was the rule and then we were doing different way besides that we developed champions they didn't like it mm-hmm. in this country it doesn't matter if you don't respect the rules if you do performance they accept it mm-hmm. you need to fight of course to get uh, you know to get in the society and to get the recognition but in the meantime, just look how many people without univers- finish university and they get billionaire and millionaire and very rich 
because they did something but mm. other people couldn't do it. Thank you very much for doing this interview with me, for indulging me in these little experiments and for yes. taking the time. Thank you very much. Yes. And then uh, because I am uh, a uh, very, very sweetheart, I don't charge you. Ah, uh-huh, very good. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Daddy, for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you all for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about my experiences with Coach Pop, please check out my book, Life with Coach Pop. It should be available for purchase sometime this fall or at the latest in winter 21-22. There's more information and purchase links to my books on my Instagram page at Quadil, Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E. Thank you again for listening. This is Dr. J signing out.